How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Carrig, also from The Athletic. Mark, we are here for another episode of Beyond the Scrum. How are you doing, man? Doing all right. Looking forward to this one, Andy. Yeah, we have a, a, a really fun one uh, lined up. This uh, The timing was impeccable. We actually... Uh, we have Howard Bryant from ESPN, a uh, tremendous writer and author uh, who's one of uh, a good friend of both of ours. And we actually asked Howard to come on the show last week um, because Howard is, for, for my money, one of the most like prescient, astute writers in our industry. He's the author of several books, um, the most recent being uh, Full Dissidence, but there's also The Last Hero, uh, Shut Out, The Heritage, uh, Juicing the Game, which is like I consider like the spiritual sequel to Lords of the Realm and a, a you know sort of essential book when it comes to baseball labor. Um, I think when I met you for the first time, Howard, uh, it was like, like Yankee Stadium in like oh nine or ten, and I opened with something that was like, "Hello, I have read all your books," and you were just like, "Oh, that's <laughs> cool, man. Thank you." Um, They're like, "Oh, he's a dick." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, oh, maybe I should have just said hi. I'm Andy." Uh, but you know, what are you, what are you gonna do? Uh, but we wanted to have Howard on the show to talk about to talk about this this kind of moment in in sports and in baseball where the sort of omnipresent but uh, often ignored intersection between like sports and race and the public good uh, that's now being sort of confronted more openly. Uh, but Howard did us a favor, and he uh, he wrote earlier this week a story that. Uh, delves deeply into exactly that. You wrote about uh, Bruce Maxwell, the A's catcher who knelt during the national anthem in 2017 as part of uh, the protests against police brutality, uh, joining sort of Colin Kaepernick and others in the NFL. Um, but it's a story that's kind of about a lot more than that. And so I just like from, to, to people who maybe haven't had a chance to read it, what was kind of your initial thought going into this about maybe how the story might go? Like, could you take us through the conception of it and maybe how the reporting informed, you know, what you ended up writing. Because I think it it takes some twists and turns that uh, are maybe, I don't know, they were surprising to me as a reader. And I'm curious what they were like for you reporting it. The Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. And um, it's it's good to be able to talk about these things as the world collapses and we start asking ourselves what, you know, what we're doing. It seems like every single day we're changing something about, about this culture and we all have to deal with it. It's outstanding and... Uh, outstanding opportunities for us to sort of say more things than we've been able to say. My attitude had been, uh, I started working on a Bruce Maxwell story back in 2017 when he first knelt. And in 2017, I had planned to go to Arizona to go see him after he knelt, when the, after the World Series, and then he got arrested. He had an altercation or with the, with the delivery person on some takeout. And I was like, okay, well, there goes my story. So I flew to Arizona anyway to go talk to him. And so he and I had been sort of building this sort of off the record conversation for a while. And I've been starting to form what was going to happen, um, you know, just sort of following the Bruce Maxwell timeline. We go into 2018, he shows up to camp overweight. He, they, the yeas bring in Jonathan Lucroy. And so I follow him throughout that summer throughout that spring he gets sent down to Nashville I go to Nashville to go see him in July of 2018 and so there's this bank of of information that I've had with Bruce for almost for two and a half years now that story never ran it's a 6,000 word story that's been sitting in, in in my computer and needless to say I haven't been overjoyed with the fact that that story is a really good story and it never ran it never saw the light of day and I don't know why it never ran it didn't make me happy. I'm thinking one day I'll post it on the website or whatever. 
and so it was just one of those stories. It's one of two stories that I think I've ever written in my life. They never saw the light of day. It just never happened. So fast forward to what was happening now. You have the, uh, I think it was the draft that did it when Kenny Williams came in. And then, of course, Theo came in and gave his interview about wanting to be a better executive. And so I was thinking about maybe doing something on that. Bruce calls me a couple of weeks ago. And so I had been working on a totally different story. And I'm looking and I see a call from the 5-3 area code. I'm like, 5-3, where in the world is 5-3? Because, I mean, I know 4-0, I know it's Europe, 4-4, I think is England, but I don't know my international codes nearly as well as I should. And um, I pick up the phone, it's him. He's calling me from, from Monclova. He's calling me from Mexico. And all he wants to do is just go, right? Pablo Escobar, guns blazing. Where was everybody? Look at all these dudes getting credit now. Everybody's coming out after George Floyd gets killed. And now that the coast is clear, all these brothers who left me hanging, now they want to talk about race. Now they want to talk about what they've gone through. Now they want to be on the bus after you got Kaepernick out there and, and, and you've got Anquan Bolden and Malcolm Jenkins and Megan Rapino. You've got all these athletes. And baseball players have been nowhere. They took me, one of their own. They completely ignored me. And now we want them out front? Screw that. I'm like, okay, story, right? I don't know, something about that said news. And, um, and so, so I start working on it. And so my plan was to just write a column that Bruce Maxwell's not having any of this, right? There's the column, there's the story. While I'm reporting the story, I was talking to a couple of sources and somebody was like, well, you've got to check out the Players Alliance. I'm like, what's the Players Alliance? Never heard of it. Yeah, you need to check this out. So I hop on the website and I'm like, holy shit, look at the, what is this? And so now you've got something else, throws a wrench, so, you know, my 1800 word column totally shifts, right? Now you're like, okay, what are we going to do with this element? What is the Players Alliance? Who's running the Players Alliance? I call the union. Tony doesn't know. I said, Tony, whose who's is this? We don't know whose it is. Okay. So now you're thinking, okay, so you've got these two stories. You've got something that we haven't seen since Bill White and Willie Stargell were out there trying to integrate housing and spring training in the early 60s. When was the last time black ball players got involved in a social issue? When did they get involved in anything? So you've got that. So my attitude was, okay, you've got two separate stories here. Right, you've got what this this nascent players alliance is, and then you've got Bruce Maxwell House of Fire. But at the same time, you start thinking, no, they're actually connected, because on the one hand, you've got this group that is now saying they want to be involved when they weren't involved before, and the guy who's really upset about this one, he's joined them, and two he's actually the real life consequence of what they're talking about. So you had to sort of try to find a way to weave these two ideas together. And suddenly, you know, my 1800 word column, when I filed it was 6,300 words. <laughs> what happened? So suddenly everything really started to change. And so I found that you couldn't really separate the two. And then while I was working on it and talking to Bruce back and forth, and now Bruce had done plenty of interviews. Bruce did interviews. He did TV with Monty Poole over at NBC Bay Area. He did an interview with Susan Slusser with the Chronicle, so he had talked. So it wasn't like Bruce wasn't talking. Um, but what was interesting about it was while I was talking to his agent, Dave Stewart, Stu says to me, and by the way, the A's would have taken Bruce back. And I'm like, what? 
Um, that's news because Bruce has, and part, of, and part of the story, and I had spoken to Stu four or five times, and it wasn't until maybe the fourth or the fifth time I had spoken to him back and forth over text over telephone that he had mentioned this kind of important detail that the A's had been willing to take Bruce back and that Bruce didn't want to go. I'm like, wait a minute, Bruce Maxwell turned down a chance to go back to the big leagues? And Stu said, call Bruce and ask him, and then call me back. So I call Bruce in Mexico, confirms the whole thing. So all of a sudden, this one story started out as Bruce Maxwell, the, the martyr, Bruce Maxwell, the guy who was being exiled, Bruce Maxwell, the guy who was abandoned by baseball. Then it morphs into Bruce Maxwell versus this new fledgling group of black players who are finally going to get into the game. And then also the third element, suddenly when you're 2,000, 3,000 words into the story, is, oh, by the way, it was Bruce Maxwell who decided to stay in exile and not come back to the big leagues. Yeah, and that, and that aspect of it, just like it, it adds another dimension, as you said, that, um, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, if you haven't read the story, you should, you should read it. Mark, it seemed like you had a question, so you can jump in. Well, I just, uh, you know, less a question and more like just to interject there. It, there's a lot of people that I think that appreciate the craft that listen to this show, right? Because like that, it's sort of taking you behind the scenes of how this stuff gets done. And, and that was a master class. You've got all of these elements, all of these shards, all of this string. When you read that work, man, I would have thought you had all of that in mind from the jump. No. So it's just, I mean, and that's, I mean, remarkable. Like just just from a from another journalist that has to try to do that stuff, like remarkable piece of work. I, I you know, I want to continue on this thread, but I, I something popped in my head like right at the start. And, you know, it's kind of when, when Andy was talking about meeting you for the first time. I met you for the first time in 2004. Uh, I was an intern at the Globe. You were a columnist at the Herald. And I remember walking in that press box and like, uh, you know, you were, you were awesome to me from the jump. And I remember it stood out because I'm looking around and like the landscape looks a certain way and you did not look like that. I did not look like that. Oh, you mean you like know, you weren't we... like a white dude in the press box? No, I was I was not a white dude in the press box, and neither were you. Still not. So, <laughs> and I remember just thinking, oh, that's, and then getting to know you, right? Like I, it made me think of this in the story. You know, what I think is so fascinating about it is you, you recreate this world in in the culture of baseball so well for people that don't know it. Like the, the just the thoughts, the mindset. Um, you know, why it is that black players have had a hard time doing anything socially, and I just was curious what your first impression of that was when you started covering the sport, because you could argue that that culture that you kind of reveal in that story is something that gets propped up by the people in the press boxes and has historically. So now you're now part of that element. How did you reckon with that, especially early in your career? Well, it started, I think, in, um, and thank you for saying that, that at least I'm not a jerk to everybody. I never um, <laughs> said you were a jerk. I said you were. I feel like a you jerk. were was a probably alarmed that this oversized like goof was just being like, "Hey, I like your books." So anyway, oh, I appreciate that. You act. You behave like a normal person. Uh, anyway, February. well, I mean, I, I cleaned up that story a little bit, by the way, because the, actually the first time Her Howard saw me, I was ripping <laughs> a heater outside out of the press gate, and he kind of gave me this side eye and then like this knowing glance and then moved on. And then we said hi upstairs. So like I, I anyway, go ahead. Well, as, I, as I have said, with all the information that we have today, I don't understand why anyone smokes cigarettes, but that's another 
story for another day. Anyway, well, that was years ago. Um, we actually had this conversation a few months ago, too, and you know it. You know it. We did. We did in Arizona. You know yeah, it. Damn it. So get anyway, um, let's go back to um, February 1993. I'm working at the Oakland Tribune uh, covering preps, and everybody at the Tribune, I'd been in the business, I don't know, 18 months, something like that. And everybody has told me to wait my turn and bide your time and pay your dues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I didn't like what I was, all the stuff I was covering. I took some vacation time on my own to go down to spring training to try to get some pro clips. I wanted to go see if I could go write some stuff and see, you know, what I could do. Um, so I paid my own way down there. Uh, Kathy Jacobson with the A's got me a spring training credential, first time ever in a major league, in a, in a major league environment. Um, I go down to, to Scottsdale, to the Giants, um, and it's like 7 in the morning because Dusty always did his thing so early, right? And so, and this is Dusty's first year, 93, his first year manager. And I'm standing in the locker room, in the clubhouse rather, and right by, I don't know where I'm standing because I've never been in a clubhouse before, right? I'm just standing there. And then I hear this voice behind me, get the fuck away from my locker. And I turn around, it's Bonds. <laughs> Shit, right? There's Barry Bonds. First introduction to Barry Bonds, 7 a.m., you know, dropping an F-bomb on me. I don't even know, and I'm like, back away. So I back away from him. Next, either, either that same day or somewhere during that, during that trip, um, Willie McGee comes over and introduces himself to me. So total contrast. I think it was the same day. He introduces himself to me and says, it's good to see you. We need to see more like you, right? And so immediately, Black reported a Black player. He comes over and he's like, listen, anything you need, you come talk to me. Anything you need to know about this game, you come talk to me. Total contrast from Bonds, but immediately letting you know there's a fraternity here, you know, that there is, a, that there is a, another sort of society in baseball. And then in that same trip, in walks Will Clark, who yells in the middle of the clubhouse, where are all the rednecks at? And so, and he did that because if you remember the 93 team, one, that team was supposed to move to Tampa. Two, you've got a black manager for the first time. Dusty brings in Wendell Kim, the third base coach, right, who's Korean. You've got Barry Bonds as your superstar who signs the six-year, $42 million super deal, right? Then on top of that, he brings in his father, Bobby Bonds, as the first base coach. And so all of a sudden, the, the racial makeup of the entire team, suddenly it feels like it's a black team. And you could, you could feel that tension immediately that, that something was happening there. And from that day forward, um, it was very, very clear that, there was going to, that I had to learn about what it was like for these black players. And obviously, going on and doing the books that I wanted to do later on, you know, the rest went on from there. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because part of um, part of what you get into in this story with with Bruce Maxwell is you know um, you, you know a lot of kind of what he went through feels like part and parcel to the to the culture of baseball where like conformity is encouraged and and really enforced and there's sort of an added dimension for for black baseball players and that they you know almost become like complicit in it because they want to remain in the sport and there's there's one passage I think it was. 
Edwin Jackson, where you know he says to his wife, yeah. "Like, do you want me to play, or do you want me to be?" Yeah, well, she was calling him a retirement. coward. Yeah, yeah, she was and him it's a just coward like the whole time. And and just that was, I mean, like that was really difficult to read. I, I felt like, and 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 it, and I'm really glad that you know guys were be able to be open with you about it. But like, how could you kind of describe like the current sort of dynamics there, and which players are? You know, having to basically you know deal with what they the the need to maybe want to speak out versus the fact that they might get forced out of the sport. I mean, Cameron Maben is a you know is another example. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that the guys. Um, I think the thing about baseball is is that you're always over you're always out overmatched, right? You're outnumbered. And what are you going to do with being outnumbered? I mean, you've got the strength in numbers in the NBA. NBA is a totally different environment. It's a seventy-eight percent black league, and the white players, the best white players in basketball, aren't even American. So you don't have that same sort of cultural thing that you've got in the NFL or that you've got in Major League Baseball. And so, the the thing that makes baseball so interesting is that unlike the other sports, you've got two things that I really find very curious and very unique about the game. Number one. Number one is that that sport, I mean, baseball is a conservative sport. So it's not just the ownership and management that's going to ship you out if you say the wrong things and they don't want to deal with it. It's also your teammates. Your teammates don't want to hear that. Your teammates don't. And and as we all know, when you walk into a baseball clubhouse, because it's the international game in so many ways, even though basketball is creeping up, the difference is, that you walk in and baseball's got all of its clicks. You got the, especially with the Dodgers back in the, in the mid nineties where you had, you know, four or five Asian players on one side, you've got the Latino players doing their thing. You've got the white dudes over there and you've got the one black guy, or the two black guys. But back then when there were bigger numbers, you had the black guys in this corner. So, and there were very few, Sean Dunson and I used to talk about this all the time, you know, about having those bridge guys. There are very few guys who bridge those clicks. How many times do you see these guys all hanging out with each other? You really don't that often. The second thing that makes baseball so different and that why we look at baseball so different is the enormous, gigantic specter of Jackie Robinson. So these guys go out every year and they all wear number 42 and they all talk about sacrifice and they all talk about Jackie, but you can't speak. So that's the other thing. So you've got, you've got this historical responsibility to Jackie Robinson, to this American figure where baseball essentially integrated the modern American society before schools, before the military, before everything else. And yet the game today does not reflect that. So guys are running scared. Guys are really aware of this and they know, they know the price. They know the culture. They know that one of the great, you know, one of the worst things about baseball is that, and one of the best things about it at the same time is that baseball is really the only sport that doesn't adapt to the people who play it. Basketball adapts to the fact that it's a, it's a black game now. Football adapts to the fact that it's a different game now. Soccer, you watch soccer, it adapts to the people who play it. Baseball, you adapt to baseball. And obviously part of the reason for that is that the defense has the ball. They'll hit you with the baseball if you don't do what they want you to do. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a totally different culture. And when you talk to other athletes, you talk to other black athletes in other sports, they, they just shake their head about baseball guys. They're like, baseball, man. Those brothers are different, right? And they are. And so it's a real interesting you know, moment in time that these guys are in because now they're being asked. Edwin Jackson's wife is essentially calling them a coward. You've got these brothers who are coming in going, okay, when this moment hits, where were you? And baseball guys are like, I couldn't get involved, right? Is that a satisfactory answer when the world's coming apart? 
And so to answer your question, if you're a Cameron Maven, if you're a Jason Hayward and you got $184 million guaranteed, that's one story. But if you're a guy trying to make rosters, do you really want to be the one who's out front when you know this is what your environment is? Right. And, and it also puts an undue burden on a small number of guys that they have to be the ones who stand up for someone like Bruce Maxwell. It has to be CC Sabathia, right? Because he's made a ton of money. And as he spoke That's to right. you in his story, like, he's like, I'm, you know, I support all these things. Like, I, you know, just because I didn't kneel doesn't mean I'm not on his side or, or whatever. But there's just such a, there's such a limited number of, black prominent black players in the game and so they get an unnecessary spotlight it says no one's asking the white players why they didn't kneel for bruce maxwell you know well they never have and that's the thing right Mm -hmm. is that this is the other this is the other piece of this is that the the entire idea of social justice for the most part it's treated as a black issue well it's their issue right how many how many white guys in history do you really look at and you go okay that guy stood up peter norman stood up at 68 olympics Peter Norman got demolished when he went back to Australia for standing with Tommy Smith and John Carlos. There aren't that other many uh, other any more examples. Obviously, Sandy Koufax was a huge proponent, but Sandy, you know, was Sandy Koufax, right? There aren't that many other guys that you can really look at and you can say, okay, they took this issue on as as their own. It's an American issue. It's a black issue, and they and they treat it as such. One of the most eye-opening conversations I've ever had in a clubhouse was when I th- they it was like my first year covering baseball and there's a, a became a very longtime veteran prominent black player in baseball but this was like early early in his career and this is back in the day so like they rain came they pushed the game back but they never closed the clubhouse we are we're now talking yeah. an hour hour 15 and Howard the entire conversation was how he had to leave a piece of his blackness behind because he knew that if he showed it, he was not going to advance. It was going to cost him time. It was going to cost him money. It was going to cost him opportunities and how it made him sick. And I remember just like, yeah, it was like a thunderbolt because like I'd felt those things too to a certain extent. Now, he's a person in this situation that's feeling it a hundred times more. And there's a question in that conversation yeah. that came up that I've never been able to answer. I'll ask it to you now. If this culture is going to change, right? how does it change? You know what I mean? Where do you even actually begin? Because my first thought would be like, well, the scouts that do the evaluating, the people that actually evaluate who gets a chance to play baseball, maybe that's where you change because that's a very homogenous group too. But I don't know the answer. What What is your take on that, Howard? Where would you change? Begin. Yeah, I think that it, it all starts with bat flips, <laughs> right? Um, I, I, I think where it, I think where it starts is a recognition of who gets to play the game and how. What are we going to penalize? What are we going to punish? The the big question that I wanted to get at in this story, and I'm sure I'll be working on this as we go on in, in different you know different themes and different articles, is why is advocating for black people a death sentence in the first place? Why is that the killer idea? If Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee for Greenpeace. Is he out of the league, right? What are we really talking about here? And I think that's sort of one of the big questions. And I think one of the other questions is too, is who are, what are we going to, what are we gonna respect in the game? And, and I think that baseball, you know, you saw me and Desmond's, uh, his little manifesto on Instagram. He said, you know, playing by white rules and who gets to 
sort of enforce what the what the game is going to look like? Can we, you know, are we going to adapt to the people who who play it? I, I think the other part of that too that's really sort of interesting, you know, when you look at it from the black player, you know, perspective, is in baseball particularly, there's a certain level of um, what's the best way to say it? It's sort of is it's supposed to be an unemotional game, right? It's a game of failure. The game has not adapted very well to the television age where these, you know, this generation, we know, what do they respect? They respect visuals, right? Baseball doesn't love that. Base, you know, baseball is a sport where culturally you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. And yet we live in a culture where everybody is drawing attention to themselves. You know, so, so the real question is, is that, I don't, you know, I think the players are going to try to do something very similar to like maybe the Players Coalition in football, where they're trying to do some partnerships and they're trying to, you know, throw money at issues. The real issue here is not a monetary issue. It's a cultural issue. What are we willing to accept in the game? And, and I think that is the, I think that's like really the first step. Let's not forget, you know, for everybody loving Ken Griffey Jr., they oh gave him all kinds yeah, of grief yeah. for having his hat on backwards during yeah. batting practice, yeah. right? Well, and, it, and it's, you know, I think it was Maven who got at this in your story talking about how, like, the black players are inherently competing against one another because it's like, okay, you're all outfielders. You know, go go play. Yeah. Yeah, I really love when he said that. Here's a trivia question to you guys. How many, how many black catchers in the history of the sport have caught 600 games? Uh, Russell. Charles Johnson. Russell. Russell Martin. Russell Martin. How many more? And these are the future managers, by the way. Catching is like is, is manager school, and you know. Right, and that's supposed to be your and that's supposed to be your nerve center of the sport, right? Or it's or it's special assignment school, or it's GM school, or it's whatever. But yeah, it's the it's the people who are in power. Yeah. So when Cameron said that, I thought that was fascinating because I hadn't thought of. I always think about it in terms of pitchers and catchers, but I hadn't thought of it in terms of okay, if we shuttle all these guys out there they're actually competing against each other so when one guy makes it the other guy doesn't make it right because they're all fighting for the same position the answer by the way is seven who else? seven in, in history russell martin is number one 1579 johnny roseborough roy campanella charles johnson Elston howard and earl batty and last but not least at 602 games elrod Hendricks. it's a shame that honey bear floyd rayford did not get there 124 um, so yeah, I mean, so when you start looking at these different positions, who gets to play the sport and, you know, you're talking about it culturally and what the game is going to respect. There's so many different layers that come into this. I think the last time I saw you, Andy, was in February, I think in Oakland, right? In, in Mesa. And so a couple of weeks later, I go over to, um, I go to West Palm because I'm working on this Ricky book. So I wanted to talk to Bob Boone who of course owned Ricky more than anybody else. And, um, and before that, I'm talking to Mike Rizzo. And I asked this question of, of baseball people all the time, just you know, to get, because I want to hear different answers. And I say, I say, what is an acceptable base stealing success rate for you? What is a, a successful percentage? And when I talked to Billy Bean, he told me when he was playing, it was 75%. The league average was, you know, low 70s or high 60s, low 70s. 75% was a good base stealing number. Rizzo told me 85% of 
I was like, Frizz, no one's going to steal bases. If so you, you have to be Carlos Beltran or Ian Kinsler. Right? I mean, how are you going <laughs> to yeah. steal bases at an 85% clip? Right? right? And he said that that's what we're <clears> looking for in the game now is we're looking for we're looking for low volume, high percentage. I was like, well, that's going to determine who gets to play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ricky Henderson's the yeah, greatest I mean, base dealer of all time. He's still at 80.7 for his career. And now you say you got to be 5% better than Ricky? <laughs> so I mean so what you're really doing is you're you're dictating who gets to play this sport. Right. And there's and yeah and there's you know when you think see things like the draft being shortened and minor league teams being cut out and there being this emphasis on you know guys who went to you know places like driveline or had you know swing coaches when they're 8 or 9 or mm-hmm. 10 or 11 or 12 years old I mean where who who is that going to predominantly favor? It's going to favor white people. Yeah. White people are going to That's be the right. people who with money. yeah people with money. Or, as Ron Washington says when we were talking about this point a little while ago, he says there's a reason why a lot of the you know, the black players in the sport right now are kids of former players because they've got the money. It's black kids with money. Mm-hmm. But even then, getting back to Ken Griffey Jr. Right, like he was a second generation major leaguer and still caught all sorts of shit for how he wore his hat. That's like right. think about that, and those and the second generation guys, there's almost like a halo effect to them, and and, and they know it. You know what I'm saying? Like they got they got breaks. You know, yeah. not to say they didn't work hard, but you know, they they got some help, and they're still. If you're Ken Griffey Jr., getting subjected to this right. kind of nonsense. Yeah, you've got a huge cultural issue in the game, right? And this is the thing. There was a time. I mean, I'm old, so I remember when we were kids when they were teaching us basketball. You weren't supposed to put the ball between your legs to change hands. You're supposed to turn your entire body and change hands to go that way. Because if you did it the other way, it was too flashy. It was too black. It was too street. It was too playground. Obviously, when you watch the NBA today, nobody talks like that anymore, right? Nobody – in fact, they get mad at you if you don't use the most effective way to change hands and shift directions because the game is so athletic. But in baseball, the sport has not really adapted that way. It it does not adapt that way. And so – I always say in the corporate world, culture changes you before you change the culture. It's the same in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. This is very, yeah, I'm very pessimistic. Uh, I was already very pessimistic, but now I'm even more pessimistic. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you're welcome. But actually, here's, but here's, here's a very interesting area of, of, of optimism. That for the first time in our lifetimes, you've got black players trying to actually do something in baseball. And you've got White players, you know, Joey Votto out there, you know, maybe there's a moment in time taking place here. I have tried to tell people, as anyone who knows me knows, I am, I wouldn't call myself cynical. I just say, look at the history. I'm not, it's not me. It's you. Look at what's happened, right? What do you want me to say? However, I have said over and over again, at this moment in time, when you have people physically tearing down monuments, Americans going out into the streets, taking ropes and chains and physically ripping down monuments. I mean, that's some like CNN international shit. We don't do that here, right? Americans don't go out in the street. So maybe we are in a moment in time where everything is up to question. And and our good friend Mark Feinsand is going to finally have a football team that has a different name. I mean, things, are, <laughs> things, right. Right? things are changing right now. Oh, my god! Right? Well, like, I, I mean, I agree with you. Here's a, 
you know, poor fine sand. But like that, the thing that I I kind of think about. Now you guys can talk about it over a heater. Oh, wow. I, I don't do that. Wow, <laughs> Joanna, I don't do that. His anymore. wife might um, listen to this show. No, she sometimes does. Oh my so, God. Anyhow, uh, like, uh, oh, yeah, cause she can't. <laughs> like, I, I, uh, you didn't see the eye roll because this is audio. But Howard just totally eye rolled the hell out of me right there. But like, I, I mean, I, I hear your point. Here's like, we're talking about numbers a lot, Howard. If you look at like 1981, like the percentage yeah. of African American players in baseball was something like 16%, maybe higher. Like it was a lot. And if you look at the All Star yeah, game, like man, the rosters were just like they were everywhere. Dude. Okay, and like here's what what Dude, kills. Me. Go take a look. Go take a look at the '94 All Star game. There's like 10 black people out I mean, in the game. Like uh, so, right? right? Like that. So we we got to this point earlier about who gets to decide who gets to play. To me, when I look at that era, we always look at, well, the player numbers have gone down. But what I think is the biggest wasted opportunity there is that the, those players with this expertise of being major league ball players, you don't see them scouting. You didn't see them coaching. Yeah. Like like the, the system drummed them out when they were here. They don't want you. Right. So, yeah, so my question, Howard, is like, how do you overcome that lack of critical mass? Because the percentage of people with those skills is so small now. Like, we don't have as many African American yeah, players. Therefore, how do? Where's even the pool to come from to be the scout, to be the 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 farm director, to be the future GM when the players aren't even there anymore? Well, you need a rev- you need a revolution. I mean, I think what Theo said about hey, I need to look at my hiring practices a lot better. I think that's key. I think there are plenty of players out there who want to be part of the sport. And the the real issue to me has always been, and I've never, ever agreed with this red herring that, oh, well, you know, black kids just prefer basketball and football. It's not true. You put a ball in front of somebody, they're going to use it. They're going to play it. You, that the sport has economically, as I was trying to say in the story, baseball is a white suburban game reinforced by foreign labor. That's what the game is now. And I remember one day, and he'll get mad at me, of course, because we have that relationship. Um, 2000, 2000, uh, my good friend Gary Washburn, <laughs> who, who always finds himself in trouble, and then I get to, I'm like, we're not brothers, we're brothers, but we're not brothers, right? I'm not, we don't even work for the same paper. Why are you asking me about his shit? That's his shit, right? So Gary wrote a story um, about, Terrence Long, and the year before Terrence Long had been traded in the Kenny Rogers deal from the Mets, and spring training, and if Terrence Long didn't make the roster, then the Oakland A's were going to go into spring training, you know, a black city without a single black player on the roster. Billy Bean lost his shit, and instead of calling the guy who wrote the story, he calls me. I'm like, what are you calling me for? I didn't write it. Talk to Gary, right? Billy pulls me into his office, and he says, do you think I'm a racist? I'm like, no, right? Do you think, he's like, I'm serious. Do you think I'm a racist? And I'm like, he says, did you read this story? I said, yeah, I read it. And I, he says, well, what do you think? And I said, I think, I think that the bottom line, Billy, it just doesn't make a difference whether you're a racist or whether you're not. The difference is where do you look for players? Where do you get your athletes? That's the question. Where do you get them? You get them from college. 1.8% black, and you get them from Dominican from the Dominican Republic. Really hard to find an African American in the Dominican Republic, right? This is where you get your players. I said, and then he goes, well, let me tell you something. And he starts taking out all this like classified stuff that we're like not supposed to see, obviously. 
And he starts going down the list. He says, you know why we don't have any black players on this team? He says, because they're too good. I'm like, excuse me? He says, because they're too good. He goes, the black player is the most expensive commodity in the game. And we don't have any money. And he starts going down. Griffey's salary, Bond's salary, Mike Cameron's salary, Barry Larkin's salary. He goes, they're the top guys in the game. He says, and we can't afford them. And what that told me when I walked out of there, one, I appreciated the candor. And two, it told you precisely this sport is looking elsewhere for its pipeline. And if you go talk to the black players, I mean, a lot of them, they may not talk on the record a lot of times, you know, I mean, I hope we're reaching a point where they feel more comfortable talking about it. But the bottom line is they replaced us with them. And that's how a lot of the black players look at it. They replaced the African-American player with the Latino player because of the economic pipeline. I mean, I mean, it's really simple. How many Barry Bonds do you pay when you draft him for 200 Miguel Tejadas, right? I mean, it's, it's, and so while we talk about race all the time in this issue, we're not talking about race, you're talking about yeah, it's class in a lot of ways, yeah. Right, yeah. it's class, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also class, Andy, when we're talking about the Latino players, you know, in terms of them not getting involved, whether it was Hurricane mm-hmm. Maria or them not getting involved in the immigration mm-hmm. bills, they don't, they're not going to get involved right. in this. And so this, there's this question about how come we don't hear from these guys because the, the economic imperatives are so great to them. And also, I don't think that they feel that these American domestic political issues are their fight. Right. Well, yeah. And like, right. look, I'm a son of immigrants, man. Like, that's, that's exactly how it's perceived. Okay, like, yeah, and if and a lot of times for most immigrants coming to the country, you're too busy with the day to day act of trying to survive. Yeah. Okay, you don't have time. Yeah. You don't have the luxury to sit there and pour through who's you know who to vote for in your local election or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. else. You are trying to get from day one to day two, and feed your family. Yeah. So it's I, I totally get that part of it, but that is another great point, right? Like that's an uncomfortable conversation to have. It's an economic piece of this too you know or or yeah well, i had a conversation with cliff floyd about it and he was he was hilarious and anyone who knows cliff knows cliff is hilarious <laughs> anyway right and and cliff was like hey man i look at my paycheck and what do i see you know who signs my check because i don't see robert johnson does not sign my checks and and i really appreciated him talking about this because you know you talk about oh, where's the black ownership and where's this and how come there's no do you know how much money it takes to get into this game? <laughs> I'm like, everybody gave Magic Johnson all this credit for writing a $50 million check. He got 2%. Right? Everyone's talking about Derek Jeter. He's got a 4% stake of the Marlins. Right? So you've got to be in a totally different economic class to play with Well, it takes guys. historical generational wealth, which yeah. is at the center of what we're talking about as a nation right 100%. now, why black people don't have that largely because they were deprived of it. With the, Anyhow. I yeah, mean, and I, I was going to say, and what I find really interesting about this and what I was worried about with the story, actually, you know, when guys start getting emotional and guys start talking about things, it's, are you able to stay on target? Are you able to stay on target about what the idea is? Because especially when guys start getting all hyped up, now you might have black guys criticizing other black guys, right? And now the story becomes this shooting gallery when everybody's actually talking um, about something else. Like, for example, the players, I mean, you know, when Delino DeShields Jr. came out and talked about how he felt like being a sellout by not talking uh, or supporting Bruce Maxwell, I was stunned working on that section of the story when Maxwell tells me, that he and Delino 
met with John Daniels before. I said, you met with an opposing GM and an opposing player hours before a baseball game? And so I called John Daniels, and Daniels was like, yeah, it wasn't in my office. It was down in a conference room at the clubhouse level. I said, that's worse. So I called Billy, and I said, Billy, do you know this? And he goes, at first, I've heard of it. But the reason why I bring this up is because now you go out, and Delino decides not to support Maxwell in that way. He decides not to kneel. And Maxwell is essentially like, dude, you sold me out. So now all of these conversations are, are hitting, you know, they're at the center of the table. Is it a good thing? Yeah. But the real question goes back to your point, to both of your points, is, is there a way where you envision, or is there a time where you envision players feeling like they can speak not being a career death sentence? That's the issue. Well, and, you know, I just, I wanted to uh, make this point maybe for segging a little bit into um, to some some labor stuff, but, you know, just talking about the, the draft, I was thinking about, you know, I covered the Royals in 14 and 15, and they obviously had Lorenzo Cain and Gerard Dyson. Um, Lorenzo Cain was a 17th round pick who had never played yeah. baseball before his sophomore year, didn't have any equipment, you know, the first time he caught a ball, he had the glove on the wrong hand, took the glove, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. When he was drafted, he was playing Madden, and his mom called and said, hey, the Brewers took you. He said, okay, that's cool, whatever. And he went back to playing Madden. He had no idea, <laughs> right? He was a draft and yeah. follow. Draft and follow doesn't exist. The 17th round might not exist moving forward. Gerard Dyson yeah. was a 50th round pick. He got chosen because yeah. he had an 80 tool. He could run. When he, I think it was 2007, he got suspended because he took the wrong medication for a toothache and it had you know some sort of amphetamine or something in it. He got suspended. The Royals kept him around because he had an 80 tool. If he had a 75 tool, a 70 tool, is yeah. he playing in the majors? Probably not. That's how yeah. thin the margin is. And it's thin, the mar- again, the Absolutely. margin's thin for everyone in the fifth, 50th round. But if you cut out all of these rounds, if you, if you reduce the avenues of entry into the sport, you are going to cut out lots of talent. And that's what the sport is choosing to do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it makes no sense to me. Yeah, well, I told and Sandy, and Sandy Olsen and I were talking about Ricky when I was interviewing him for that book, and we were having a conversation about this. And, and I had said to him, I said, you know, none of these projects, none of these programs are going to have any in real impact in the level that you want until scouting and development gets behind them. I said, it's one thing for RBI program to come out of community development budget, come out of community affairs and public relations. It's one thing. It's another thing when you give the Los Angeles Dodgers control over some of the black players in the area. I said, you want to, if you really want the black player numbers to improve, then you've got to create an academy system like you do out there, you know, in the Dominican, you've got to actually put your resources behind it. I said, so, you know, Break it up the same way you break up territorial rights on the TV side, right? That every local market gets to control, you know, 15 African-American players in the market. You'll compete with football. You'll compete with basketball. And then Sandy said something about, yeah, but that wouldn't be fair because, you know, who wouldn't want to control the Dallas market or the Florida market? And who would want to be in Boston? And I said, so what? Look at the Yankees right now in your economics. That's not fair. Fair has nothing to do with this. I said, actually, what it may do is it may level the playing field a little bit because some of those markets that can't compete with the Yankees at least have local talent. But what they really want to do, I'm sorry, but what, they really, what they're really saying is, is that they're, cur- they're comfortable with their current economic model. And their current economic model is that they do not have the international draft. They're very comfortable 
with everybody putting, I mean, look at how much money has been put in the Dominican Republic in baseball since 1980. I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge financial investment. And so my model has always been, you look for talent, you find talent. Where are you looking for your talent? Now, I, I was curious having, so I want to talk a little bit just kind of about juicing the game and thinking about the the sport in terms of uh, a long-standing labor conflict in a way because like that book is it's it's about you know mm-hmm. steroids I guess like there's even a, I think there isn't there like a needle like shooting a baseball on the cover it's like an iconic the, the cover it's so busted. good yeah, it's yeah. so good you get it because uh, the balls you want to hear a funny story about that very quickly yeah mm-hmm. so when you write a book there are two things that you should know one is that you do not have the author does not have final say on title or cover art okay right? They want you to be happy, obviously, mm-hmm. because your name is on the book, but you do not have final say. The, and I was trying to find this and I can't find it. I, hopefully somewhere it's in my files. The original cover art for, the, for juicing the game was like gay porn. It was hilarious. It was this buffed out steroid guy, right? with no shirt on and is like back to the camera and he had his baseball pants on, but the baseball pants were open. You could tell he was like either getting dressed or getting ready to get undressed. And you could see they were trying to make it look like Canseco, okay. right? And he was all like glistened up. And uh-huh. I go, that's not gonna be on the cover of the book. I said, that is not happening, right? And I had been trying to find that image for the life of me. I lost the image. And I called my friends over at Penguin. I go, do you guys have the original image, the art for Juice in the Game, that cover, is hilariously bad. That's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. I was like, that actually would have been. See, yeah, he was, he was sort of like with a shoulder turn, right. and you could see like the. I was like, that's Canseco, and that's not happening. <laughs> I'm just getting this image of George King wheeling all of his shit into the press box, like when the book's on. He's got that on and holding like, it the against the, the, Yeah, like, this? what the hell? Yeah. You know? exactly. So, hey, they, Howard, yeah, I need so. you to sign this copy. Need you to sign. All right. Howard, I like the uh, art for this. Um, so the book, the book, right, is it's about steroids, but it's really like about labor, right? And I kind of and I and I do yeah. I see a real kinship between it and and Lords of the Realm because it, it it's a story oh, about a huge compliment. Thank you. Yeah, and, and it's and uh, unlike John Hellyar, you will come on our show, <laughs> so it's a better. Uh, better book oh you won't come on he's i i he's like i don't think he's like in journalism anymore so he was very polite he's he's very polite i don't want to he's you know all he's right. great man. he's out in san francisco he's yeah like, dude i like john it, yeah wrote what, two of my favorite books of all time but anyway yeah. we're talking about years right and and it is like there are a lot i felt there's a there's a real like kinship between the two because it's basically about ownership versus players and how that yeah. manifests itself and so like knowing all of that and all the time you spent on that conflict what was it like sort of witnessing the current labor movement, you know, leading up to today kind of to, to get baseball back on the field this year? Yeah, I sort of enjoyed it. And uh, I think that the thing about the book is I always I always say when it comes to book writing, you know, books go through three stages. Um, stage one is the book belongs to you. Stage two is the book belongs to the publisher. And then stage three is the book belongs to the world. And once the book belongs to the world, there's nothing you can do about how people interpret it. My feeling about juicing the game had always been, I'm going to go into this book asking one question. What is the reason for the greatest era of offense in the modern era? That's it. Of course, it becomes a steroid book because all of everything around us was 
stories, but that book's not, it's not Game of Shadows. It's not juiced. It was never intended to be that. Um, it was always intended to be what is happening right now that we're seeing this here. Um, it's essentially the why now question. Um, when you look at where we are right today, I feel, and I talked to Tony about this a little bit, and I didn't talk to Manfred. I texted Manfred a little bit when we saw him in, um, in Arizona before, the, uh, before spring training started. And I really appreciated the fact that for where we are in this country and where we are in this moment in time, all we do is talk about givebacks. And we're constantly stomping on labor. We're stomping on labor from the Supreme Court standpoint, which is going, which is making it extremely difficult to have class action lawsuits. The Supreme Court is going out of its way to, to prevent unions from funding and to how unions are funding. They're trying to break unions that way. So you don't have, you can be part of a union, but you don't have to pay your dues, which kills the union. There are all kinds of different ways where unions are on the run and they've been on the run since 1980 and even, even before. I like the fact that the players are like, you know what, we're not going to budge. And I think you get a better deal that way. And I think it's important to finally put your foot down and say, no more givebacks. We're not going to give back. We're, this is, you made a deal. A deal is a deal. We don't have any control over who the commissioner is. We don't, you guys have a $5 billion purse with MLB advanced media. You don't give that money to us. So sorry, this is what happens. This is the price of leadership. So this is what it costs. So I actually liked that because I thought it was a good, I think every now and then you got to put your foot down. And also let's not forget where we are in baseball. Let's not forget that the last negotiation, everybody is laughing about Tony Clark getting beaten and the union getting destroyed and the whole thing. And then, you know, and that, that, that ownership was essentially telling people to, to not gloat in public because they didn't want to upset the union. They've been dancing in the end zone for the last three years. And so I, I, I think that it was good that the players are like, you know what? No, you're going to have to deal with us and we're not going anywhere. And I had no problem. I, with it. You know, this is related to a couple of points we've covered, including the last one. You talked about labor and how it's perceived. What changes have you seen as far as ownership side goes? Because when I look at it and, and this goes back to, again, a couple of points we've already talked about, they are more risk averse than ever, right? When you're talking about 85% to steal a base, like, and, and you look at who they target, who they sell. Well, listen to your language. Well, listen to the language. I, I was talking to Billy about this a few years ago. Uh, I don't remember when it was and what the reason was. We just, we talk all the time anyway. And he was like, listen, he says, um, he says, the bottom line is, is that the Major League Baseball has decided to model itself after the Fortune 500 company. They're not, they're not sports hmm. businesses mm -hmm. anymore. They've decided to model themselves after any of the major the major corporations. And so they've gone Ivy, they've gone analytic, they've gone, you know, they're not thinking about this in terms of the mores of the sport, which I also find interesting because at the beginning of this conversation, we're talking about how rigid baseball culture is on the field, but the culture upstairs has changed completely. The, cult, the front office culture, we've seen a revolution in front of our eyes over the last 22 years. So there's no question that the way they're running their businesses is they've completely shifted. They've decided that this is going to be run. And I get it. It's going to be run like a Fortune 500 company because it is a Fortune 500 company. This is a $10 billion industry. And so, and that's why baseball has always been very interesting to me that you've got all this money on the line and still you go to the winter meetings and people are spitting tobacco into a, a plastic cup. 
Um, so, I mean, like, right. So there is like a, there is a change in the culture of how the businesses are run, I guess. Like, does that, do you foresee, uh, problems on the labor horizon given how the, 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 like the, the union was basically able to stand firm because it doesn't seem like the owners are going to, you know, change what seems to be their goal, which is to hammer in a salary cap and continue to try and break the union. No, this is a, this is a huge fight. I mean, there's no question that the fight, the, the struggle is real. And they're banking on three specific things. One, they're banking on the one thing they always bank on, which is that the public is going to turn on the players, right? Right. Because the players haven't really had, the players lost the moral, they, they lost the moral high ground in so many ways because they won so much. Mm-hmm. And so are you really going to say to the to the public, you guys are going on strike because a $17 million qualifying offer was unacceptable to right, you, right. right? I mean, so you're losing some of those battles. At the same time, at some point, you got to say the public doesn't matter in this because I'm not comparing myself to being an electrician. I'm comparing myself to my industry. Mm-hmm. So leave me alone. That's the first thing they're banking on. The second thing they're banking on is the fact that you've got a huge number of Latino players who have more than they've probably ever had. There aren't that many middle to upper class, middle, um, upper to middle class uh, baseball players. And, you know, the Bernie Williamses of the Puerto, of Puerto Rico are not populating that much of Major League Baseball. So these guys really are doing better than they had ever, ever anticipated doing. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at them and you're saying, okay, do you guys really have the stamina to fight for 27 million when you should be, when we're offering 22? Mm-hmm. So they're like, no, take the 22, right? So they're banking on that. And then, of course, the third thing that they're banking on is that nobody's done this in a quarter century. Nobody has walked out since 1995 or 94, really. You know, the first walkout was August 12, 94. It's 26 years ago. So how many of these guys are really, really got, you know, are really ready to do this? Right. I mean, especially when you look at the last negotiation, when one of the big arguments was, was that the guys weren't even fighting over money. They were fighting over accoutrement. You know, they were fighting over amenities. They were right. fighting over suites and right. whatnot. Right. And who gets to sit in first class and what the plane looks like. Right. All of those things, these things send signals to the to, to management that that union is not the same union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in some ways it's a victory. Mm-hmm. Right. You're so rich now that these battles are negligible. But on the other hand, you lose something very, very valuable if you're not willing to fight. Do you, uh, do you think they should be playing baseball in 2020? No, I don't think they should be playing right now. I mean, I was talking to Bomani Jones about this this morning, and I was uh, saying when we first got sent home, and I, I left, I didn't get sent home. I left right before the shutdown. I was like, yeah, I'm going home because I was pretty much done. I think I cut my trip back like a day. So I just went home. Um, that weekend, that weekend, Indian Wells shut down in tennis. Right, right. That was and like the first then, domino, right? It was the first yeah. domino, right? And then later that night, Tom Hanks announced he and his wife had it in Australia. Then the next day, the NBA went. That night, that Sunday, when Indian Wells shut down, I got calls from so many tennis people who were like, this is a massive, massive overreaction. You know, this is a huge overreaction. And so the question had been, are you risking being too cautious and costing yourself 
a ton of money by shutting down? Or are you being too callous by protecting the money and not paying close enough attention to safety? It's obvious that the point that we've reached right now this summer is that we're risk we're in near callous territory or we're in callous territory, right? Because I asked the question, in terms of real information, what has pushed us forward today that we didn't have in March? I don't see a great deal of progress to make you say, July is safer than March. <laughs> right, right. Right? It seems fundamentally less safe. Yes, <laughs> it does. So the answer is no, I don't think they yeah. should be playing. But I also understand, I understand the impulse to get on with it. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest problem that baseball has and the biggest problem that American sports has is that in terms of crisis for 100 years, it has always positioned itself as the healer. Right. It's, we're the ones who are going to help you heal out of whether it's the 9-11 or World War II right. or the Boston Marathon. Sports is the thing that's going to bring everybody together. Bringing people together now gets you killed. Right. right? I, so, I th- I, did, I, you may have written about this, and, and I want to say maybe it was in the Heritage, but just like the idea of like the 9-11 mindset is you know, sports will be – the healer and it, and we apply that to so many other things and like that is not how this works like you know it can't they, work that way it's just these are they're different events you know they're different they're obviously very traumatic terrible events but they're just fundamentally different and like there was this idea you know it, it was crazy to me when people were saying baseball players will be seen as heroes for going back to work and it was just like yeah what how i mean is like do, does the sport think so little of the public that, that, that they yeah. assume that that's how, how the public would react to that, like unilaterally? That to me was, yeah. was well, really and especially confusing. with nobody with no fans. Right? <laughs> right. That was a heroic. Right. It's, so I will say one thing about sports, though. I will say as much as we talk about the lanes, and I and I buy into all of that. The one area where sports still did its service, it was like the the dying hero who does the one last thing before he croaks, right? The one thing that sports did do is that when pro sports shut down, everybody paid attention. Yeah. It's true. When the NBA said, we're not playing, everybody's like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. shit. This is, where's my mask? Where's my mask? Right? That actually mattered. And so for them, so they do have a, a, a huge say in this. Where I think they're going to lose and where I think they're losing right now, especially if you follow what Jake and Amanda Dickman said, if you're following what, the, you know, what some of the opting out players are saying, and if you look at what happened with UNC, with North Carolina today, with 37 positive tests, they shut things down. Where they're losing it is there's evidence right now that says you can't be the healer and you're still trying to be the healer, which tells me that you're going for the money. And so that is the part where, where they're in real danger. But the issue is, the problem is, is that there are still many, many people out there who, who sympathize with sports and with ESPN and with The Athletic and everybody else who are saying, let's get on with it because... We still need these businesses. Right. What's going to happen if we don't try to keep this going? Baseball could face a really difficult question here very soon, which is as they try to attempt to go forward with this, there might be a a point where they've got to shut it down. Do you feel like there's – Which is going to happen. I mean, I I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like is there enough – I don't know, for lack of a better term, just like moral compass within the the stewards of this game – to make that call because when you watch this labor fist fight, I didn't see much uh, moral compass uh, for, again, for lack of a better term. It, it seemed like this was a fist fight over yeah. money. Uh, and you apply a fist fight over money to this dynamic that could get awfully, awfully dangerous. Do you think there's enough left 
to do the right thing if it comes down to that, where you got to shut it down. I have a feeling that if it does happen and the way it's going to happen is that the players are going to walk. I don't think the game is going to make that call. I think the players are going to make that call. I think there's a great question about legitimacy, right? The players made the argument that a 60-game season was not legitimate. Other people made the argument that if you go through all of this, play 60 games and then play a tournament, your champion is your champion, right? That that's legitimate. I worry about how things shift and the Dodgers go all the way and they get you know, to a seven-game playoff series. And David Price wasn't there for games you know, three and seven. And so when we applaud him for taking care of his family today, are you still applauding him when he's not on the mound and your team needs some arms? What's going to happen there? So, and then also in terms of legitimacy, are you really going to tell me that this is a legitimate enterprise if you start up on the 23rd of July, shut it down on the 15th of September, and then try, you know, it's like, don't, should you just cut your losses right now? I think it, it would have to come from the players. Um, I think there's, you know, there's also if enough general managers potentially are vocal about it. I mean, you know, it, it, it but like, I think it would have to come from the players, you know, threatening to walk essentially yeah, because they feel it's unsafe. I agree. Because and, and also exactly right. And so what's going to happen when you start having this rotating thing where you're making sure you don't have any positive tests, but you're still getting positive tests. Right. And when do players want to come back? And the one thing that we found out so far is that the COVID virus is not cooperating with our ideas of what the science dictate, which is that just because you get it doesn't mean you can't get it again. Herd immunity has not really worked, mm -hmm. at least not in Spain. It hasn't been proven mm -hmm. that getting it once means you're okay not to get it. It's not the chicken pox, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So as long as you have this level of uncertainty, we can all pretty much assume that a second shutdown is coming. And if you know that a second shutdown is coming, what can you accomplish in terms of legitimacy between now and then, right? What's the actual accomplishment? You're going to start playing here. How many games can you get in by the end of September? What are you really accomplishing? You're going for money. You're trying to get money. Trying to get paid. Same thing. You know, same thing. Like we're all trying to do. We got. You know, like we have to work to to get money to pay for goods and services, and it's just yeah. But the, here's the, the dollars question, that these Andy, guys right? have are, are higher. Yeah, hundred percent. But here's the question: You send them out there. When do you, Andy McCullough, actually feel comfortable going to a crowd? <laughs> I mean, yeah, a, a crowd. I'm serious. When are you gonna? If I said to you, "Hey, man, the movie theater is open right at the Cineplex. Let's I mean, go." You're fairness, like, "I'm going." You're like, right? "Andy's been socially distancing three months. since like 2009." So, like, let's just—it's important yeah. context. Yeah. I would but say. I mean, I mean Howard, you... my legitimate answer is probably like three months after a vaccine has come out. Same. Same. And like I don't, 100%. I you know I have some friends in my life who make fun of me for that. I you know I'm I've, I've had more than a few readers who pointed out that you know that uh, that I'm maybe being a little alarmist. But yeah, I mean when when you know like I love like playing poker. When am I going to a casino again? <laughs> I mean like no. you know three three months after there's a vaccine probably. That's right. You know, um, so yeah, I, I trust me. I very much, uh, I very much am concerned about the you know whether or not this is a responsible 
decision to to stage this baseball season. But if the point was to not exist with the virus, they wouldn't be playing baseball. I mean, the point's to make money, and this is how they've you know. So it's going to be interesting to see like what actually happens if if that would lead players to speak up and to be willing to walk from the money because I, I would bet it's going to have to come from their end rather than from ownership. Well, one of the things that I found fascinating about reporting on this, this Maxwell story was the fact that these black players had a COVID chat group in the first place. It was like, because that whole group chat started out as a COVID information session. And I'm like, okay, so I guess, you know, you guys are, although with the number of black players in the game, they can have a zoom chat and everybody can be on one screen. Oh my goodness. I mean, that, which gets to another point. Like if, if, if the thought is the players are going to be the ones that are going to have to pull the ripcord on this, I wonder if there'd be still enough holdouts to press forward anyway. Because, and you referenced this in the, in the Maxwell story, Howard, the culture of a baseball ecosystem is very much regional. And in this case, it's a very conservative region. And as we've seen with people's perceptions of this horrible thing, they are very much colored in whatever your persuasion is. Right. And it seems to me that in baseball, it, there is still a majority of folks that might be on the other end of it where they're like, you know what, we're pressing on. Like, it makes me think that they know that and they have enough bodies to throw at it to keep going. To, so you get to your playoff payoff. Well, I was really surprised if we're being totally honest. I was surprised. I'm like, listen, you guys have infrastructure in Florida and Arizona. Right. So you could actually play your entire season in spring training facilities that are all relatively close to each other in Arizona. You actually could do this if you wanted to. However, then both of those states exploded in terms of spike. But the idea of actually physically flying around the country to play in gigantic stadiums with no fans strikes me as a bizarre choice. Yeah, it's, it's and it madness, struck me as yeah. it, it struck me as the reason that you would do that is because you believe you are going to have fans. The reason why, the only thing that makes sense to me in doing that is that you feel like at some point during this, the local fan is going to be able to see their team. And if we start up and we do the whole thing in spring training sites, then they're not. And it doesn't look like it's going to work in that direction at all. Because it actually, from an optics standpoint, it looks better than at Pac Bell, right? Or AT&T, whatever it's called now. Well, it was one of those things like when the Arizona plan kind of, you know, first surfaced in April, right? Like I think we all sort of looked as like, wow, a six-month biodome, that's that's pretty insane. And, you know, there were some people saying stuff like, well, this is, you know, the best way to play baseball this year. You know, it's something that like epidemiologists are saying like, well, this is the safest way to play baseball. And I think players had reasonable, you know, concerns. Like I'm not abandoning my family for six months. I'm not existing, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm not a soldier. Like I shouldn't be at a wartime, you know, footing to play this sport. Right. But I'm a hero, not a soldier. Right. (laughs) But, but it was, it was remarkable to me that there were reasonable objections to this plan. And then they came up with one that infectious disease experts say is riskier. Like that was not an outcome that I expected, to be honest. And so it makes it challenging to kind of wrap your head around like how this is going to play out because it's already expanded outside of what I think, you know, the sort of rational uh, thought process on it would be. Yeah, no doubt. And so that's why you just say, okay, you've chosen callous, Mm -hmm. right? 
And I think what's been really interesting about this is that when the pandemic first hit, when America first started to shut down, the NFL was the one that was treating it like it didn't exist. And now we're in July and almost in mid-July, and the NFL had to cancel games. And now they're not even talking about the season yet. They know better. They're like, what up? They, I mean, and it's not that they know better because they're intelligent. It's because how do you go forth? Have they even opened training camps yet? No, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the baseball sort of labor uh, fight that we saw over the past two months is going to be nothing compared to the NFL in the coming months. I mean, that is just because, because the NFL is the national religion. And I think that is going to be way more tumultuous and taking place on a, a bigger scale than the baseball fight because, yeah, and, no, and, no and it's, it's creeping up on everyone because as you said, no one's talking about it. Right. Like, it's not like it, it, they're just sort of, there's this idea that like, Oh, the season's going to start in September and everyone's going to go to the link to see, you know, Carson Wentz disappoint <laughs> us yet again. But no, right. we're not going to have that happen this year. Because Nick Foles is coming back <laughs> to the Eagles. Right. And that's the reason. I think right. I've gone all off track. They bang the Hall yeah. of Fame. All, we, right? all we know. Right. The, yeah, that's in August. August. That's, gonna, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. All we know is that you guys at the, the NFL has talked about one game and they canceled it. <laughs> right. 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 They haven't talked about a second game. They talked about one game. Well, and they sorry, canceled. Las Vegas. We'll so, just have to wait. We'll have to wait. Wait for uh, your no, stolen right? fucking know, and you're wearing team. your. But, uh, yeah, but you're still wearing stop. the colors. I, Aren't you? I mean, no, you're am not I colorblind? Me. I can confirm. It is silver and black on this shirt. Son yeah. of a bitch. <laughs> Mark is, exactly. Mark has finally well... uh, given up his Niners. Stop. Family. Stop. Stop trolling me, Andy. It's not nice. It's not nice. <laughs> I was going to uh, say. Yeah. I mean, those, those colors, you might as well get like a little Mark Davis bowl cut. Yeah, work, I'm working on He's it. He's pretty close at this it. point. I was yeah. going to say, no, you're not, not that, that far. far you're not that far away <laughs> from telling the truth. Closer than usual. <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yeah. Well, uh,. I think Howard. Thank you so much for coming on. This was this was really yeah, fun. It's my and, pleasure. It's been great. Yeah, and uh, to all the, the listeners who stuck in, uh, please, if you haven't read the, you know, the, I mean, read all of Howard's work. It's really good. But the, the story he did on Bruce Maxwell, I, I genuinely mean this. Like, it's the best thing I've read this year. And like, I, uh, you know, it was just, well, it was really, it. really, in, really good. I'm interested in seeing what these guys do with it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? What are they going to do? And and once again, it's one thing to take a knee once a week. It's another thing to do it 162 times in a row, right? Mm-hmm. So it'll be real interesting to see what they do strategically and what those optics look like. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate you sticking with us, and we will be back next week. Have a good one. Yeah.